Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. For two weeks in March 2023, longtime former U.S. Representatives David Bonnier and Jim McDermott, who's a physician, traveled to Poland and Ukraine along with retired Catholic priest Peter Daly. Their goal was to meet with Ukrainians who have fled their homes since Russia's invasion. An estimated six million people have transited through Poland, the largest displacement of people in Europe since World War II. In this episode, Mr. Bonnier and Father Daly talked about what they learned about this aspect of the war from the displaced Ukrainians and the refugee organizations assisting them. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Former Congressman David Bonnier and Father Peter Daly, welcome to Q&A. You've both just returned from a visit to Poland and Ukraine. What was the goal of your trip? Well, Susan, we, we had this idea that we weren't too old yet to matter. So <laughs> we, we, the purpose of the trip was to try to do something within our bounds, within our means, uh, to help with the situation as a result of the war in Ukraine that Russia has has attacked Ukraine on. And so uh, we wanted to do basically three things. So number one, we wanted to get the stories, these amazing stories of these refugees who migrated from Ukraine to Poland, Romania, Slovakia. But we basically said, well, we're going to go to Poland because that's where most of them came. They had 11 million people go through uh, Poland uh, in, the, in the first year. Uh, so we want to get the stories. And then the second thing we wanted to do was... Uh, uh, once we got the stories, was to tell them, come out and tell them to the public, so the public understands the the nature of the people that were migrating and the struggle that they had, and importantly, as the, the as they are also the caregivers in Poland, particularly who took care of these 11 million people when they came, and then and then thirdly and finally, we wanted to make sure that we could go up to the hill. And I could see my old colleagues up there and tell them what we've learned in Poland and Ukraine with respect to this war and how significant it is in terms of important it is in terms of the help that uh, we need to keep giving the Ukrainians in their struggle. So as for credentials, why people said yes to you coming to visit them, obviously for C-SPAN viewers, you're a familiar face for people who have been around for a while. 26 years in the House of Representatives altogether? Yes, 26 years. And you were on a Ukraine committee? During the yes, so well, I worked on, on issues for the Ukraine, especially the Holodomor, which was the uh, Red Famine in 32 and 33 that killed 4 million Ukrainians. I worked on that and as, as well as other Ukrainian issues. And this is also part of your heritage. Yes, my family is half Polish and half Ukrainian. So my father's side is Polish from Lublin and Krakow, uh, his father, my grandfather. And then on my mother's side, my grandfather, who I lived with, who didn't speak English, who I was with constantly for the 18 years I grew up, uh, he uh, was from Galicia in western Ukraine, uh, where I have visited and taken my family to see his village and, and that kind of thing. So I have affinity based upon family. Father Deli, what about yourself? You've been doing work with uh, refugee and migrant communities that gave you some perspective on what you were seeing there. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Uh, well, I'm a priest of the Archdiocese of Washington, so I worked briefly with immigration legal services. I'm a lawyer, a D.C. lawyer, too, but I worked briefly with immigration legal services at Catholic Charities and uh, 
we also together helped to sponsor an Afghan family when they came from Afghanistan who had worked for the American embassy there. And I um, worked with people coming from Nicaragua. And many years ago, when I was in the seminary, I helped to coordinate a program for Ethiopian refugees in Rome uh, when Pope John Paul asked the religious houses in Rome to open their doors to Ethiopian refugees. So over the years, I've been involved with refugees, yes. You've had, you had two other travelers on yes, the trip. Yes, we did. Who uh, were they? Yeah. Well, familiar face to some of your viewers, and I know to you, Susan, is uh, uh, Congressman Jim McDermott, who was in the Congress for 28 years, represented Washington State, and Jim is also a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, and he has an interest particularly in the issue of trauma as a result of war on children and certainly combatants. And I worked with him on some of that during the Vietnam days and the, the effects of uh, trauma on Vietnam veterans. And that's where post-traumatic stress disorder became a, 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 an, ac a, an acronym, a PTSD, uh, that we've used now for half a century. And one other traveler on the trip. Yeah, Tanya, oh, excuse me, thank you, thank you, Ta Tanya Kepler who worked in, in the area of technology for many years. And so she was very helpful in terms of working with us and, and working with uh, some of the interview people we work with. Father, did anybody in the group speak Polish or Ukrainian? No, unfortunately, nobody did. Uh, we were fortunate to be able to hire uh, translators and guides. So we had, uh, in Poland, we had a young Ukrainian woman who uh, had left eastern Ukraine uh, and uh, in Luhansk, and uh, but nine years ago when the war actually started in 2014. And uh, so she was our translator. She spoke uh, Polish and English and Ukrainian. So, And then once in Ukraine, we had various uh, translators provided either by the church or by students from Ukrainian Catholic University or from Razum. Razum. Razum, and uh, so, which is a, means together in Ukrainian, and it's a, it's a kind of Ukrainian, American, Canadian effort to try to support uh, the people of Ukraine during this war. What were the days of your trip? How, when did you we go? We left on the 8th of March, and we returned on the 22nd. We spent the first half of the trip in Poland. We started in Krakow, and then we went down, excuse me, started in Warsaw. We went down to Krakow, and then to Zeszow, uh, which is a very important city in, in all of this, and we can explain that a little later if you'd like, but uh, those were the three cities. And then when we went to Ukraine, we went to Lviv, uh, which was near my family home, and uh, Ivano-Frankivsk, which was about two hours away in the in gateway to the Carpathian Mountains. In that trip, we went to a retreat house uh, and talked to 39 uh, refugees, Ukrainian refugees, uh, who left their homes, but didn't leave Ukraine, but were there. And these, the, that was probably, I think maybe Peter would agree with me, if not the most uh, significant experience we had, it was, it was one of the top two or three. It was the most emotional. Those, those 39 people, they live in a retreat house that the, that the church there has given over to IDPs, internally displaced persons. And uh, so that, that's their home now. And uh, I, I guess it's gonna be there for the duration of this war. And uh, it was very emotional. People, uh, young people, old people, children, uh, but they re you know, their lives have been completely turned upside down. How was the trip put together and how, did, how was it financed? 
Well, we financed it ourselves because we wanted to do something beyond make contributions to the organizations that are helping, like the International Rescue Committee and RASM and, and some of the Catholic organizations. Uh, so we decided, let's let's go there and, 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 and bear witness to what this, they have to say, their stories, how their lives, as Peter said, have been upended and they've lost their homes, they've lost loved ones. These are important things for people to hear. So we. So we decided to finance it ourselves. And uh, how long did you work on the stops and where you would go? How many how many months of planning went into this? Oh, I say about uh, two months. You know, I, we kind of started from scratch and and made a lot of calls, and one would lead to another. You know how those those kinds of things work. And finally, we we made the right contact in each place, and we had about thirty separate. Uh, visits or meetings uh, during the trip. In two weeks, that's a yeah. busy schedule. Was, yeah, we were very busy. Father Daly, is it difficult to cross into the border, across the border of Ukraine? It wasn't really. We had no visas required for Americans to cross into Ukraine. We had to, we discovered a few days before that we we're supposed to buy an insurance plan in case we die or get sick over there <laughs> so that they can ship our bodies back. <laughs> but uh, uh, no, it wasn't really difficult. It took a little while crossing in and out, especially mm -hmm. crossing out, and I, there's sort of a little story about that later on, but we, we discovered that things were delayed crossing out more than crossing in. It wasn't too hard, though. And, and just for background in this, and these numbers are a bit smaller, <coughs> excuse me, than you just mentioned, Mr. Bonnier, but these are from the U European Union's Joint Research Center. They re released their statistics on March 8th on the Ukrainian refugee crisis. Mm -hmm. They described it as the fastest displacement of people in Europe since the Second World War. Yeah. Uh, Ukraine had 41 million population mm -hmm. before the war. They say in their numbers, 5.3 million displaced internally, 7 million abroad, with 4 million of those to the, the Europe majority staying in Poland and Germany. Those yeah. numbers are uh, yeah, a little bit smaller than you gave, but it sounds like Poland was the major transit area for most people leaving Ukraine. It was. Ukraine. 11 million came through Poland. Some of them continued on to Germany, where it's the second largest intake of, of uh, migrants, uh, refugees, were, went through Poland into Germany. And then uh, there was a considerable number in uh, the Czech Republic, so I think 600,000, uh, Romania, uh, Moldova, uh, a number of places uh, took took in, but Poland by far. Poland uh, took in, I think, what six six million is it eventually. Well, the, the numbers are a little squishy because people came in at the start of the uh, invasion in February of 2022, but some many returned to mm -hmm. Ukraine. So it's a little hard to tell, you know, as, as people cross both ways. But yeah, Poland was the certainly the largest recipient and. Uh, I think now they're saying it's just under two million remained in Poland. Yeah. But one point uh, one point six million were were uh, assisted through Caritas, which is the Catholic Charities uh, arm of the church in Poland. Poland is a country of thirty eight million people, absorbing this many people in such a short time. Oh, Huge incredible. challenge. Did you get any sense of how receptive the Polish population is to all oh, this? Oh yes, we did, and it. I actually like to refer to it uh, as the Polish miracle because, uh, you know, Poland and Ukraine didn't always get along well together. And over the last century, they, they, they've had uh, skirmishes which resulted in thousands and thousands of deaths between them. But 
they have recently been seeing the commonality of their values and who they are as people and their geographic location and and, and how they could come together in coalition and be a and, and fight any aggression. And of course, they've they've felt aggression from Russia, from Germany, from other places around the world over the years. So, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, amazing. With the uh, Peter can maybe speak to this because of his church affiliation, but I call it the Polish miracle because Caritas, which he referred to as the arm of the Catholic Church, they did one amazing job. There was not one camp, one refugee camp in Poland with all those millions of people coming through there because they have a structure, 10,000 parishes, convents, monasteries, and, and, and they filtered once they were interviewed all these families and individuals, they filtered these in, uh, people into uh, these, these facilities and parishes where they were absorbed by, by friends. So they really followed the Good Samaritan idea of, you know, hugging your the neighbor, your stranger, the stranger and making them your neighbor. And it, it was quite, quite uplifting to see all of that and hear about it. What's the relationship between Caritas and the Polish government? Well, Caritas is an NGO. It's a nonprofit, uh, private organization. But really, the Catholic Church is the only institution that has reached into every village and every city in Poland. So it, you know, was able to cooperate with the government. The government did a lot, and I think we, as a government, could learn a lot about receiving refugees and mm. uh, asylees. One thing, uh, the Polish government passed a law giving these people temporary status. I think two years they gave them. They also allowed them to have work permits. They gave them health cards so they could access the Polish health system. They enrolled their children in school. They provided translators and uh, language instructors. So all of these things, the government worked together with private charities. And the government really, in my view, really had to change its mentality on immigrants and refugees, and I think maybe that's a, a permanent change. I think now they've they've seen a different a different view. Of course, there's nothing like a common threat from Russia to yeah. to make to bring you together. And they they you know what we heard like from Father Marson, who is, runs Caritas in Warsaw. He said, you know, if Ukraine falls, we're next. Poland is next. And they are all convinced the Baltic states or Poland would be. That, that that Putin does not intend to stop at the border of Ukraine, that they, he would keep coming to recreate the old Soviet empire. And so they feel that this threat is their threat, you know, and they responded with, with great generosity and uh, really amazing. I mean, the, the government really had to, to move quickly and make some changes. They're spending a lot of money on uh, helping Ukraine with military assistance. And uh, this resettlement of refugees has got to be incredibly expensive for the Polish government, too. Any sense of how they're making it all happen at this point? Well, they've got a good economy. That's helping. I mean, it's probably the strongest economy uh, uh, of all the new states, uh, uh, NATO states in, in Europe. And it's got the lowest, or second lowest, they think, unemployment rate. It's like 3%, so it's sort of like ours. It's got the, so it's a very strong economy. 
and so much so much so that they had to uh, import uh, uh, workers from Ukraine. So before the war actually commenced uh, in two, excuse me, this recent phase of the war commenced in uh, uh, 2022, uh, they had two million Ukrainians who came in there and are working. So that helped actually to absorb. Uh, they actually were helpful in, in, in taking families in as well. Because they brought, they absorbed their own relatives and friends, friends and people and, like yeah. that. But like our translator, for instance, she had come in 2014, and uh, she's now settled there. She's decided to become a Polish citizen. And uh, but uh, you know, I think that uh, the fact that Ukrainian language is similar to Polish, uh, it was it allowed them to assimilate more quickly. And uh, I, I think that they. Uh, they were, most of these refugees into Poland were women and children, elderly people and disabled people. Anyone who couldn't fight. Anyone who couldn't right. fight, because the men 18 to, 18 to 60 are not allowed to leave Ukraine. They have to, they have to remain. So uh, these, the people that they absorbed, a lot of the women uh, found jobs or are finding <laughs> jobs in mostly in the service industries, but they're, uh, in some ways, it helped the Polish economy, I think. Yeah. So we're well, going to look at some of the particulars sure. from your trip. Um, okay. Your cell phone, you took photos along the way. and Yeah, we did. Yes. Yeah. And we're going to start with the Warsaw. And this is the Caritas Center in Warsaw yeah. for mm -hmm. Migrants. Uh, so what, what was particular about this stop? What did you learn there? Well, we learned on how the program, the Caritas program works. They're in 32 different places in Poland. And these are the hands-on people. These are the people that work with the kids that you're seeing here. They're the ones that uh, uh, also place people into jobs. They have interview sections. They have psychologists at these centers. Uh, and one of the real serious issues that result from war is obviously the impact on children and uh, the psychological uh, impact on them. And so. Art is one way of, 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 of getting to what the problem is and then hopefully moving away from the problem. And so in most of the centers that we visited, there were art programs. This, this picture doesn't show it, but when I walked into this building, there was a room with a picture of a tank and a child with a flower standing in front of it. That uh, there it is. There, there it is. How about that? Right on cue. There's Ukrainian nice. child stopping a Russian yeah. tank. tank. See the yeah. Z on the tank. Yeah. And that was done by a child. Yes. Yeah. So what did the caregivers tell you about the mental state of the children in their care? It varies, but those who uh, some some of the uh, people told us, and psychologists as well as the caregivers that they, they received the children because their families took them outside of Ukraine because they couldn't take the tension of the air raids and the bombings. And even the air raids without the bombings, uh, constant, and it was just too stressful. Uh, but, you know, stresses on children can be very, very damaging for the rest of their lives. We've learned that from the taking away of our children, or of children along the southern border in our country, and and what the problems that's caused. Uh, so, uh, so they. Yeah, what is another amazing piece of all this, uh, Susan, is the fact that 
they have they have psychologists at all of these 32 different centers around Poland that work with the kids. I mean, you can. They, very impressed with the yeah. psychological dimension and and spiritual dimension. We met with some sisters, uh, some nuns in Krakow, and they told us that they prayed with the children. They said actually Ukrainian children were more enthusiastic about praying than the Polish children because they had a daycare center. But they said that the uh, Ukrainian children often prayed for my daddy, bring my daddy home, that I want to go home, keep my house, you know. The, the children were able to surface their anxieties in their prayers. Yeah. Another stop in Warsaw was the Center for the Documentation of War Crimes. What did you want to learn about there? I wanted to know how they worked, how they accumulated evidence, and, uh, and how they used the evidence to go forward to, uh, with uh, indictments and prosecutions. And they were very meticulous. Uh, we, we spoke with basically one woman there, but she right. was very much involved in this and had been over the years. And they have been accumulating a, a tremendous amount of evidence, uh, not only on uh, those atrocities committed by the soldiers in Buka, in Irpine, and other places that are pretty well known now throughout the world because of the publicity they gained, but also of Putin. In fact, while we were there, he was indicted by the International Criminal Court for kidnapping of Ukrainian children. And she, she was explaining to us the, the meticulous process. They don't expect these cases to be brought for years. So they want to preserve the documentation now because while witnesses are alive and while people's memories are fresh and while there is evidence, mm -hmm. uh, documentary evidence, uh, photographic evidence, and the problem is you can't just accept anybody's video or uh, photograph. They have to verify everything, the location, whether it's authentic, whether it's been doctored and so forth. So they have a, a meticulous job. And I think Opura means it's our time or it's time. Yeah. But uh, they, that's the name of this group that gathers the information. So they go and interview refugees in Poland about what did you see? Uh, what happened to your relatives? Uh, do you have evidence and so forth? It's a, and eventually they hoped it'll go to the International Criminal Court uh, and there's a theory of universal jurisdiction, which you might recall when the uh, Augustin Pinochet was, was charged in a Spanish court for crimes against humanity. The, the EU recognizes this idea of universal jurisdiction, that you can bring a charge in any court against violators of human rights. So they're hoping that they could get a prosecution maybe in a Polish court or a German court against uh, these Russian officials. Who funds this center, the War Crime Center? It's privately it's funded. Yeah. Private donations, yeah, yeah. Donations. yeah. And uh, they may get some money from USAID. I don't, I don't know, but uh, uh, I, they, I know that they had. They, she did tell us, and I've got some notes here on it. But I think it, they the got e some governmental funding, some EU, EU funding, money, yeah. and some funding from USAID. Next stop, uh, or a follow-on stop, was in Krakow and more refugee briefings there. But I thought one of the uh, other interesting people that you met was Mrs. Varusha, who oh, was yeah. helping with military resupply efforts. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. What, she was, was, a very what was her story? Woman. Well, her story was, and Peter can fill in where I may have left something off. She and her husband migrated from, um, from Ukraine, and I think it was around two, 
14, if I'm not mistaken. A little earlier, a little earlier than she that. She said she'd been nine or 10 years in, in Poland, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, anyway, the, they firmly believe in Ukraine and Ukrainians and are appalled like most of the world with what Putin has done and want it to be helpful. And so they raise funds and property to help the soldiers. They'll get what they night. call logistics. Logistics. So, yeah, they they buy things like night vision goggles, not non non lethal assistance for the soldiers. But they, vehicles, they bought. I think she said three hundred vehicles. They buy uh, drones. Drones for observation, bulletproof vests, all kinds of stuff for for the so things. It's interesting. The families talk to their soldiers in the field. The soldiers tell them what they need. The families contact this group, this IT partners, I think it's mm -hmm. some kind of partners in Poland. She and her husband worked in information technology. And so they, they have, they're very sophisticated about, that's how they got their jobs in Poland. But um, they're volunteers. They've organized a bunch of Ukrainians who live in Poland to supply this stuff and they have people for instance buy vehicles in Poland and drive them to the border and get them to the troops because their vehicles uh, the military vehicles are being chewed up at an incredible rate so uh, I, I we thought it was amazing that they uh, th this is a way that people could if they want to assist the troops this is right. direct assistance and sure. we, we has thought, she already connected mm -hmm. with the uh, Ukrainian diaspora outside of Poland is this an international effort that they're doing or Yes, Mostly. they, yes, get, they yes. get donations fact, from I, all over the world. I have yeah. a good friend who lives in uh, Lyon in France, and uh, he drove an ambulance there a week and a half before we got there. And, and so this is an effort internationally that are working with people who want to be helpful and people who want to do something. So this is something they can do. And this is something she did. And we found that the students that we talked to, maybe we'll get to that in a little bit, but they were interested in spending a lot of their resources and time and money raising, doing the same thing, buying these goggles and all things for the troops that are, that are in the field. One of the things that struck us and struck, struck me is that this is not just the Ukrainians' fight. This is everybody's. Anybody who cares about democracy or the freedom of peoples recognizes the injustice of what's happening to them. and. I think there are people all over the world that want to be involved in this. I mean, it's partly why we went. I, I wouldn't have gone if David hadn't asked me, but I mean, the fact is we suddenly realized, you know, maybe we should do something. Yeah. The next city I wanted to talk about, and you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation. I worked on this a bit, Zeshov. Yeah. Very good. Uh, and, and it begins with an R, so it's very good. <laughs> I was on my computer with the how do you pronounce this program for a bit with it. Uh, so you said earlier this was a very strategically important place. Why? Yeah. It's a city of about 250,000, about an hour away from the border. It's where Biden came in. He flew in there uh -huh. when he was going into Ukraine. Ukraine. Yeah. There's an American military base, well, it's a NATO military base just outside of yeah. Jeshov. Where they, they brought in 14,000, 12 or 14,000 troops into Jeshov. And uh, there's about 2,000 2, 2, stationed there, there yeah. now. But originally, you know, in those first days, uh, with the instability, they, they brought in quite a few troops, uh, originally from Germany. Germany. I asked our translator, how do you feel? Do you feel safe here? And he said, yes, now that you guys are here. 
<laughs> have another photograph. Uh, this is uh, at, at, I believe, the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. Yes, yeah. that, that was in the show, and that's Father, Father Bo Igor, Igor Bo Bodan. Yeah. And that's Jim McDermott in the back. And, uh, On the right, uh, yeah, yeah, and the right of... Now, this, this was a really an amazing visit because, as you can see from the photo, it was mostly young women and with very, very small children. And uh, they told their story. The women told their stories. And this woman in the forefront here with her uh, orange skirt on and blue coat and the one with the orange in the back sang for us all Ukrainian songs, which was quite moving. Yeah. And the one on the, almost all the way to the left there, she told us, she spoke excellent English. She told us her story of getting out of Ukraine. And all of them live there. This priest, he's been given this church as a, actually it was a cemetery chapel that belonged to the local Catholic Church, and they gave it to the Ukrainian Catholic Church, Ukrainian Catholics, to have a place to worship. So he's about 300 women who are his parishioners, almost no men, because these women and their children have come, and they want to be in this town, Zheshev, because it's the closest big city to the border. Mm -hmm. And so that if they need to go back, they can go back. I mean, can they get to see their fighting husbands from time to time? They can. Mm -hmm. If they go into Ukraine, they yeah. can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, and that happens, and that's why they 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 settle close to the border. Yeah. You also had a note from this stop about the regional food bank that operated there. What what should we know about that? Well, How it works? a lot of food is brought in from around Europe and. Uh, not only food, clothing. Uh, because they came with very little. Yes, they yeah. came with what possessions they could take, and and, and basically those most important possessions were their children and their elderly parents, and and a suitcase maybe. If some Sometimes things. their pet, their cat, their dog. Sure. Their cat, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they. It was the, the food bank receives donations from everywhere. We did see a, a box from Samaritan's Purse, which is an American evangelical yeah. charity. So there are all kinds of people from all over the world that were uh, helping. And that food bank had just dispatched uh, 18-wheeler into Ukraine with individual boxes that were prepackaged so that you could give to somebody with some supplies. Also, supplies that could go to the front and be given to people in trenches. Yeah. So next is uh, Lviv. Is that how you pronounce it correctly? It yes. Yeah. And well, we discovered every city has three pronunciations, the <laughs> Polish, the Ukrainian, and the Russian, mm. and uh, they don't want to use the Russian anymore. But <laughs> and your home base there was the Ukrainian Catholic University, so you yes, uh, operated. Yes, so we spent a, a week at the Catholic University yeah, from called, out, called yeah. Uku. Now, Ukraine the next Catholic one is a stop uh, in Ukraine, Zaritsya. Uh, that oh, yeah, is, yeah, yeah, that was the retreat place. And you, yeah. and you, earlier, in the mountains. you earlier described this as one of the most powerful stops. Oh, why, yes. why is that? Oh, well, these stories, the personal stories were so powerful and they were so sad. We just said to them, we're here to listen. You tell us your stories. And so I think almost for two hours we listened. Yeah, maybe two, more. More than two hours. And, and, and it was uh, heart-wrenching. Uh, it was... Here's one young man, Constantine. Yes, uh, I wrote a piece yeah, about him actually, and uh, he's, he's left, 16 right? years of age. He is from uh, Kherson, and he and his mother, and as you pointed out, his cat, uh, <laughs> Masa, 
they made their way up to Ivano Franquis, and then eventually they ended up here uh, in the name of the town you just mentioned, which I won't try to do. <laughs> but anyway, they he uh, I watched him very intently as others were speaking at our program. He's a very uh, serious young man. You know, you're forced to grow up quickly, unfortunately, leaving your childhood behind, and he. He, he had an empathy about him when, he, when others were telling the stories of loved ones who had died and homes that were bombed out. He later told me that his home was uh, firebombed, destroyed completely, and he showed me, he had it on his phone and he showed that to me. And I, so I asked him what he wanted to do with his life. Does he know now? And he didn't even hesitate. He said, yes, uh, the army. The military so he's going to join and he very well could be you know in the front in a, very, a year or so um he was a very uh thoughtful young man and he did something at the end uh that was quite emotional for for me but i think for everybody there uh, we were having dinner after this was all over with and after dinner he came out with other young uh people who were at the retreat house, and they had a Ukrainian flag, and they all signed it for they us. It. Oh, there they are. Yeah, yeah, you can see Konstantin on the right yeah, there, yeah. which was, was, yeah. was pretty moving. It was very. I was. It was really nice. It was interesting. He wore his Los Angeles T-shirt when we were doing that. I think he wanted us to see it at some American thing, <laughs> <laughs> but but he, uh, yeah. yeah, very serious kid. The thing that about his story they told us is that he and his mother knew that they had to leave when they could lie in bed and hear the Russian troops torturing some of their neighbors who had, uh, the, the Russians thought maybe had uh, given away their position to the Ukrainians. So they said, well, if they're torturing our neighbors, they're coming for us next. So yeah, they, he heard people pleading for their lives. Mm -hmm. It was, so it, the it Russians really haunted had, him. had occupied the area where they lived, yes. but they right. had remained yeah. even right. after the occupation. And then when he, they, you know, he, for, he went to, his grandmother couldn't get the uh, uh, medicine she needed. She died while the Russians were, uh, had occupied, so he went to the graveside and to visit her. And while he was there, the Russians were talking about importing him into their army which was, you know, scared him quite a bit, as you can imagine. Sure. Yeah, he's only 16. Yeah. But it, but it was interesting, yeah, it was very, it was very moving, but it was interesting that uh, he was, you know, the, calm about this. He said they went through more than 20 checkpoints getting out of Russian-occupied territory. And he said they finally, when they saw a Ukrainian soldier, they knew they were safe. Mm -hmm. Is it surprising that the Russians let them leave? They talked their way through it. I think it's just amazing. You know, we they kept saying we need medication, we need to see a relative. They could, you know, you have to just make up some story at each one of these checkpoints. So, also in Lviv, you toured the city. Did you see any evidence of Russian shelling, or is Lviv pretty much immune from that? Well, it's been Lviv has been. Hit, uh, it's in the west, so the west is relatively free of, of, of shelling. But they have been hit several times. Uh, we didn't see any of the places that were, were hit, but maybe a week and a half before we were there, they hit uh, a place just outside Lviv, and I think four or five people were killed were, were yeah. killed in it. But other than that, other 
we we had we have on our phones. I don't have mine with me here, but we have apps that have the air raid sirens on them. So they go off. And the first one of the nights we were the first nights we were there, they went off about eleven o'clock. So we had to go down into a, the Mark bunker Hamill's of the building. voice from Star Wars is on there in English. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he says, you know, air, end, air raid alert, air raid alert. You know, he says, your overconfidence is your weakness. Yeah. And then at the end of the bit, he says, may the force be, may the with, force you. be with you. But uh, it was kind of calming, though, I, I guess. Yeah, yeah. well, he, we, we had uh, two or three, uh, three, I think, air raid alerts yeah. while we were there. But... Lviv is as far from the front as Chicago is from Washington, D.C. So it's a long distance. And um, there have been some hits around the airport and power plants and things like that have been hit. It's a beautiful city. It's one of the gorgeous cities of Europe, actually. It's about 800,000 people. And uh, you, you said in your notes that you visited with the Chamber of Commerce uh, yes. to get their perspective on That's the, where we the, got these things. the economy. <laughs> Is the economy still functioning there? Yes, it's functioning. People are going to work. People are going to work and uh, they're going to school. Uh, it's contracted. Somebody told us, I think uh, uh, Jeffrey Wills, Wills yeah. told us that it's gone down by about 30%. But people are trying to go on with their lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You also, uh, this is the ne next set of pictures, visited the Armed Forces Church. And I have two photographs of them. One is the peace doves, I believe. Yeah, cranes, I think, or maybe doves, I don't know. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that was hanging from the balcony. It was uh, St. Peter and Paul's Saints Peter and Paul church. What, what made this the Armed Forces Church? It was after the end of communism, the church was given back. The churches, that, uh, during communism, that was a book depository, a warehouse. And it was given back to the Ukrainian Catholic Church. Most of the people in that area are, are Eastern Rite Roman Catholics. And so, and it's, it's not really architecturally right for them, but they had to use it. Anyway, they made it the garrison church, for the church for the military in Lviv. There were also uh, posters, which were not only just in the church, but all around the city. Mm -hmm. What are these? Oh, those, are the, those are the casualties of the war. These, these are, are the killed. fallen. These are the guys. So these are, they, they're usually with a sign that said, our heroes. Yeah. And all throughout the aisles, side aisles of the church, you, uh, you can see just yeah. boards of people like this. There were hundreds, hundreds maybe thousands. Maybe thousands, yeah, yeah that were killed. Yeah, and these were all from these brigades that are somehow associated with Lviv. So it was very moving to us because at the end of mass, which was very crowded, they brought, there was a group of, a company of young soldiers who were brought in by their company commander, I guess, and they, and a silence descended over people as we watched these young soldiers come in and look at these faces of the fallen because we realized that they might next, be next. Yeah. And it was very moving to me, uh, you know, I, I really, found it moving, yeah. their, their sense of sacrifice. And interesting instruction that their company commander or whoever it was that brought them there thought that they, sh they, should, they see should see this. this. <laughs> you know, they're not, they're not only Pretty fighting. Pretty sobering as a, as a troop in battle to see them. Yeah. Right, and they were completely silent. And they were not only fighting for Ukraine, they're, they're fighting for us too. They're fighting for democracy. And you know, if, if Ukraine falls, the next places are 
as Peter mentioned, the Baltics, Folan, and those are NATO places, and we will be there. Our people will be there fighting. Uh, I'm, the U.S. I'm talking about because of our affiliation with NATO. So it's when you when you see that it it, it clicks, especially in, in a war atmosphere that we were in. Mm -hmm. uh, you also mentioned that you met someone by the name. This is under the people that come to help, Dr. Steve Orton, yeah. and his group of visiting doctors. What yeah. was his story? Well, he, Steve is is a, is a, is a uh, does surgery, a plastic surgery, and he just got interested like we did. He didn't. I think Steve didn't know very many people with regard to this issue, so he just decided to figure out a way to come to. To, uh, he works with the evangelical group. Yeah, and he's an American? Leap, Leap yes, from Dallas, Dallas, Texas. Dallas, Texas, mm -hmm. an American, and he went there, and then he brought, this is his fourth visit, and he brought nine other doctors with him, and they did surgery. They did uh, surgery on people who were injured uh, in the war, and then they did surgery on civilians as well. So they, they were pretty very impressive group. I, I thought very highly of the work they did, and they're probably going to come back with, instead of 10, they'll probably have 15 next time. So We met a uh, plastic surgeon from San Luis Obispo in California who uh, was going to do facial reconstructions yeah. for soldiers injured in the war. And I thought, you know, very important work. And that we There was another ophthalmologist there, I think, who was mm -hmm. going to do work on eyes that have been damaged, you know. so. Uh, they are bringing this, their technical expertise and supplies to help. And where did, are, they, are they operating? What kind of facilities are they able to use? Uh, they're they're hospitals there. So yeah. they are able to go into existing hospitals and yes. do the work? Ukrainians allow, in some hospitals, they're allowing them to go in and, and do as sort of visiting doctors. Yeah. So we talked about the mental trauma for people that you met in Poland. Did you have any? greater sense of anguish with the people that you met in Ukraine because the war is an ever-present part of their existence? Mm, the tension rises when you cross the border. You really, if you, the little things, the windows on all the trains are covered with plastic, not, I mean, clear plastic, you can see out, but to, so in case there's a bomb that the glass doesn't fly everywhere, you know. Uh, there are tank traps, these, uh, I don't know, they look like jacks or something, at, at every intersection. There are tires p piled up to, for evasive maneuvers. Mm -hmm. I mean, sandbags over windows in most of the buildings. At the university, we yeah. too. So the basement windows, so people can go to the basement and be safe. Mm -hmm. uh, all of these things, you're suddenly aware everywhere. There are soldiers everywhere, people in fatigues, you know. This is a nation at war. This is not a military. I mean, one of the things that you realize is, you know, sometimes we've been involved in things and we ask our military to do these things, but it doesn't affect the average American much, you know. But there, everybody's involved. Everybody's involved. They're raising funds. They're raising, getting equipment for their military. It, and if, when you drive down the highways, they're big billboards because you go into Ivano Frankiste, it's a big city, Lviv of billboards of their heroes, people who have fallen, and it's a little story about them on the billboard. So as Peter said, it's ever present and you feel the tension. And uh, one gas station, we stopped to get gas. They, mm -hmm. they every liter that you sell, uh, one Ukrainian hryvna, which is about three cents, goes for every liter, goes to purchase drones for the military. <laughs> so, I mean, this is not a promotion that would be 
common in this country, but it was it's it's yeah. amazing that everybody's involved in the student union building at Uku. They have a, a frame that they've strung a net over, a big net over, and students bring down their old socks and things like that, and they tie them into this net, and then these nets are sent to the military as camouflage covers for tanks and armored mm -hmm. personnel carriers, so that. The students, even in the student union building, are aware of this and they're very participating so. in it. Yeah, yeah the, that, the Ukrainian military is very smart, they're very nimble, they're strategic, and they're taking advantage of the almost unanimity within the country for support. And it's made a difference for them, I think. We spoke I, to three classes at the university and, and one of them, the first one, there was a young woman who was a medic she joined us by Zoom for this English language class, and she waved to us, and then she turned her phone around so you could see where she was. She was in the middle of a field somewhere. And in the middle of the class, she got called, she had signed off, because she had got called away to attend to some. This was in person. Bakhmut, mm -hmm. where the heaviest was, fighting was. Where she was we stationed. Think, we she think was she was in taking, Bakhmut. What? Yeah, she was in the classes. field there. Yeah. 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 So this was one of the places where the uh, the air raid alarms went off when you were there, Prof uh, Professor Woods and Professor Marta's class. What happened? You were about to speak to the class or meet with the class, and then what happened? Well, we were scheduled to meet with the class, and uh, we were actually having some breakfast in the cafeteria, and then the alarm went off, the ra air raid siren went off. So we ended up uh, going into the building next door to the cafeteria and down you know, maybe two floors beneath the ground floor and uh, looking for a place where, first of all, the professors, uh, Bob and Marta, could gather up their students, <laughs> which they did, which quite, quite, quite well. And then we found a side room where we could uh, uh, meet with them. So what did you learn from university students? Oh, from these students. Just total commitment to the country and love of the country and support for their military and uh, actually, uh, a real sadly, uh, just a, uh, I wouldn't call it a hate, but just a, such a reluctance on on Russians that uh, because of what they've done, they they can't believe they have done the atrocities they have done to their people. In all three classes, I asked them. Uh, Three questions. I said, how many of you want to be in NATO? 100% raised their hands. How many of you would like to join the European Union? 100%. How many of you want to separate yourselves from Russia, culturally from Russia? 100%. They're angry at Russia. And they said to us, this is not just Putin's war. I mean, Putin mm -hmm. is the one responsible. But they, he, they said, the Russians have been doing this to us for hundreds of years. And if there were no Putin, there would still be Russia. So they really have decided that they, their lot lies with orienting themselves to the West. And uh, they, that's why they're studying English. One place we went in Ivano Frankisk, the, the archbishop had gave a, sent a deacon to be with us. Uh, deacons are just before you're ordained a priest. And, and he, the priests there are married. Interestingly, the Ukrainian priests are married. And he, uh, he had studied in Ireland. And the reason that the bishop had sent him to Ireland is he wanted priests who could speak English. And so their orientation is now shifting away from the East to the West. But these young people know nothing other than an independent Ukraine. Uh, people older who That's lived right. under the 
Soviet Union have a have a different attitude about it all. Did you have a chance to talk to them about their reactions to what Russia is doing? Well, pretty much there's there's pretty much unanimity in in the where we were in in Western Ukraine uh, against against the war and against the Russians and their actions in Putin, of course. Uh, so we you know we didn't get into the east, but even people in the east, we were told by others uh, who were sort of ambivalent, who spoke Russian. They have been just totally turned off by the actions of the Russians in this war, which they see as barbaric and which are barbaric and which are violations of international law. So the Russians have not helped themselves at all. Uh, in fact, it's, this has been a disaster for them on People several who formerly fronts. spoke Russian now refuse to speak Russian. You know, I mean, President Zelensky was raised speaking Russian. So our, our translator in Poland, her mother was a pediatrician in Luhansk who was raised speaking Russian, had relatives in Russia, and now she doesn't speak to her relatives in Russia. And, you know, her mother is having, struggling to learn Polish now at, in her 60s. But, um, you know, it's been a real cultural shock. They've had to sort of say to themselves, we're separating ourselves. One priest told us that he went out with his family to eat in Kiev during, there was a pause in the fighting there last summer, and they went there to Kiev, and they ordered, they started to order the meal in Russian, and the waiter said to them, we don't take orders in that language anymore. So and, these young people, when they spoke to you, they want, they were committed to the fight, but did you talk to them at all about Ukraine after the war and their aspirations? It oh, has a yes, we tough did. road to hoe. It's, it's a tough road, but they really, they see a, a real prosperous, eventually a prosperous Ukraine and a crane built on values that were significantly different from maybe the past. And uh, they're, they're upbeat, which surprised me given what they're faced with. But uh, I, was, I came away very, very much impressed with them and felt that, yeah, they're gonna get through this and you know, if I'm a corporation and I want to f establish my company abroad, it's just be a great place to go to Ukraine because the people are smart, they're tough, they have metal, grit, and uh, they work hard, and it's a it's actually a beautiful country, and it's it's a I think they they see that as well, and spiritually they've got something in them. The these young people that you refer to, Susan. That, that's gonna help them move through this. So we have about seven minutes left in our conversation. And one of the things you've been doing is writing some essays when you've come back about yes. your experience. And here's a paragraph from the bomb shelter class that you described. Near the end of class, Irina said she was puzzled why the American people thought that Ukraine would fall soon and only last a few weeks. I said that the intelligence in the West was faulty, not just the US, but other countries as well. Quote, they overestimated the Russians and underestimated the Ukrainians, end quote. I responded, the Ukrainians, uh, uh, the Ukrainians had the war since 2014 to understand that the Russians were not invincible and the Ukrainians were growing in their confidence in their tough and gritty determination to save their homeland. Irina said, the Russians live in a bubble. And I thought to myself, so do we. Hmm. Well, that's what do you what think I, in there? I was thinking, you know, we just assumed that Russia, like mostly everybody else in the world, that they were going to wa just walk in, and and uh, the Russians were, and, and 
Goliath versus David, and Goliath was going to win. But they, they, we were we were all wrong, and uh, and we underestimated the tenacity uh, of the Ukrainians and 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 their how bright they were and thoughtful they were, and uh, uh, they've been doing this. They've been fighting them for nine years prior to this, and so I was thinking to myself, you know, listen, we we all live in our own bubbles, unfortunately, uh, and we're not broad enough in our thinking and respectful of others and i and i think that applies to our government at times as well although i might say since you brought this up uh i'm just astounded by the the leaks that have occurred with regard to intelligence uh, that we've seen this past weekend it's really really serious so you're giving away positions for the ukrainian army and i hope they get these people whoever they are and they are severely punished because you know we're not talking about one or to lives here as precious as those two might be, we're talking about hundreds, if not thousands, of lives at stake here, and a war, and so this was a really serious, serious breach. Well, on that note, it takes more than tenacity and grit to win a war. It takes munitions, material, and and fighting people. And I'm, I'm wondering, you are well aware of the dissension that's in some corners in the United States mm -hmm. about the amount of money, mm -hmm. uh, about concerns, about de uh, diminution of our own uh, military supplies mm -hmm. since we're transferring them to Ukraine. So what do you say to people who are raising those concerns? Well, I say to them that, you know, the people in Ukraine are fighting not only for themselves, but they're fighting for us. Because if, if Ukraine falls, uh, the next people up, uh, because, you know, Putin's been doing this throughout the rim of, of Russia in different countries, whether it's Chechnya or, or uh, you know, Moldova. Uh, he, he's, he's in there, now he's in Ukraine, and we've got to stop them. And so this is where you stop them, and this is where you defeat them. And I think people have to understand, he, those people who are fighting for us in Ukraine uh, are fighting uh, not only for their country, but they're fighting for us as well. And uh, in terms of the running out of stocks, we've just got to produce more. There's no question about that, because we live in a different world than we did 10, 20, 30 years ago. And we've got to make sure there's accountability for that. And I think so far, the Ukrainians have been using our resources well, and they've quitted themselves very well in the battlefield. And uh, so we just need to stay with them and not lose faith, not lose hope. And in Congress, I think the votes will continue to be there. Well, we're gonna lose some Republican votes, but there are many Republicans in the Congress who are very strong and firm on supporting Ukraine against Russia. So I, I have a good feeling about we'll be able to continue to go forward. In, in my estimation, it's money well spent. You know, we'd rather do this than have American lives on the line. And, the, and if if they invade the Baltic states or Poland, we're we're in the, we're in the fight. But the the other thing is, I I, I think that um, the contrast between the Ukrainians who are who are actually have a will to fight and a desire to preserve their country, as opposed to say what happened in Afghanistan. We I mean we can see what happens when we have a partner who really wants to to win and uh, I think they're going to win the, the kids in the classes that we talked to were all convinced that they're going to win 
and that after victory, the country will have a renaissance. And a couple minutes we have left. Now that you've both had a couple weeks since you've come back, how are you processing all the things that you saw? Mm. Well, I think, you know, I, uh, I think about our trip a lot. I don't know, I'm sure Peter does too. And because it, it had such emotional uh, content to it. Talking are you going to do anything that? differently? I mean, you're going to speak about it, but has it changed your approach to getting involved in ways that you might not have thought of before? I'm taking it a step at a time, and I think this was a pretty good sized step for us, and it depends on how much people want us involved. And I don't want to get in people's way, but I want to be helpful. And we've had, you know, Peter's a lawyer in addition to immigration. He knows a lot of issues in, in addition his great work he's done with the Catholic Church in his parish in Southern Maryland, uh, he has a lot to offer as well. And so we're available to, to, to be there if people want to take advantage of our many years <laughs> of experience. And so, I, I hope to go back someday. You know, I hope to go back maybe. One of the things that uh, uh, a man from the UKU said to us, Ukraine needs investment. And I said, what should, what could I do? He said, you could bring a group here, spend some money. So eventually, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna need people to come there. Yeah. And we met with the Lviv Chamber of Commerce and they, yeah. of course, that's what any Chamber of Commerce would say, but that they, they want investment. They want us to be engaged over there. And they would rather have us invest than the Russians. Yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna close our conversation with you. And thank you very much for, you. to both of you for being here. And, and sharing your experiences with the C-SPAN audience. We're gonna close with a video you, you took of university students singing. Will you set the stage for us? Uh, sure, this is, is this the one in, this, in the streets in, this, in the city? Yes. Yeah, this, we, we were coming out of a, having something to eat for dinner and uh, we weren't expecting this. And then all of a sudden we walk outside, it's evening, it's dark, you'll see in the film. And we w saw a crowd, we went over to see what the, what was going on, we could hear the music, and they were singing uh, Ukrainian songs, and they were singing patriotic songs. And so, Central Lviv, right in front of the church. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome. 